0: Welcome to the Jaharis Podcast on Health and Intellectual Property. This episode was recorded on April 7th. My name is Anna santos Rutschman and I'm the Jaharis Fellow on Health Law and Intellectual Property at the Ball College of Law. Today we have with us Jake Sherkow from New York School of Law and the Innovation Center for Law and Technology. Jake's research focuses on intellectual property, more specifically on patent law and the biosciences. He is the author of over two dozen scientific and legal publications, as well as a frequent commentator to outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and NPR. Jake, thank you so much. um, Thank
1: you very much for having me today.
0: We're talking about intellectual property and cancer. That's a pretty broad and important topic. And you've recently written about the IP framework for cancer. So could you please explain to our listeners a little bit, what is the interaction between intellectual property and cancer?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I have a paper coming out in the North Carolina Law Review called Cancer's IP. And one of the things that it explores is how intellectual property relates to how cancer research is being conducted. Cancer research is incredibly costly and takes a long time And generally speaking, private industry will not commit to that kind of research and development funding unless there is some guarantee of an asset. That asset typically is some form of intellectual property in the form of patents, or trade secrets, or regulatory exclusivities. And this question is, how do you stitch all those together with some kind of funding commitment to get cancer research done? Um, One of the methods that has been proposed is the funding of a quote unquote cancer moonshot. This government establishment of a public private partnership to encourage private commercial developers to invest in uh, cancer research in such a way that is going to encourage things like data sharing. So the things that I explore in cancer's IP are does this make sense, and is it actually going to work?
0: Now let's start with the cost aspect of cancer research. In the paper, you relate that to informational complexity. Could you talk a little about that?
1: Yeah, so like I was saying before, cancer research its really difficult to do, and one of the reasons that it's really difficult to do is because cancer in and of itself is a really complex illness. So, first things first, when we use the word cancer, what we're really doing is describing a class of illnesses, about 200 and counting, where their only commonality is an out-of-control division of cells, which, by the way, is even not always true for all cancers. But kind of underlying that are all of the myriad factors that go into whether a particular tumor or neoplasm develops, why, the genetic factors that go into the development of a particular cancer, the tissues that are affected, and the individual patient history of people who are afflicted with cancer. The same tumor transplanted into a different individual is likely to progress completely differently. And so for that reason, trying to do research on general truisms about cancer, or for that matter, even general truisms about a specific cancer in particular, is inordinately, inordinately hard. It is not a typical mechanistic illness the way that, say, influenza is. So it costs a lot of research and development funds. It costs a lot of money, essentially, to like, unpack all of that complexity, to do validating experiments to see if you have a hypothesis about cancer, whether you're actually right. So the cost and the informational complexity, those two things are tied to one another. The more complex a particular illness is, well, the likelihood that it's going to cost more money to figure out how to work it and how to cure it.
0: And so, patents are usually considered the default mechanism to incentivize R. and D. And and that's costly, right? So, how do patents fail cancer R. and D?
1: Yeah, so they seem to fail cancer both from a descriptive level and in some cases on a normative level too. So they fail uh, they fail cancer research on a descriptive level because we have a number of patent doctrines that seem to obviate uh, some of the most important uh, abilities to patent the products of cancer research. So the first patent doctrine that really seems to be problematic for a lot of cancer research is. Uh, patent eligibility. right? Um, There have been a number of Supreme Court cases recently that have heavily restricted not just the strictures of what can be patented, but the class of inventions that are eligible for patent protection. Um, A lot of cancer research seems to be falling under these strictures, these recent strictures on patentable subject matter. Um, maybe most famously, the Supreme Court decided a case in 2012 called Mayo uh, Mayo versus Pro, Prometheus, and in that particular case, the Supreme Court limited the availability of patents on diagnostics of particular illnesses. Well. Figuring out whether or not someone has cancer, and whether it's going to progress, or for that matter, figuring out whether someone is at a higher risk for cancer, that is a diagnostic. So to the extent that the Supreme Court's decision in Mayo could be read as no patents on diagnostics, which is something that Becky Eisenberg has said recently, and I tend to agree with her, that's going to be problematic for cancer research in the diagnostic space. Um, This seems to be particularly true on some related grounds to another avenue of uh, cancer research called cancer immunotherapy, using the human body, using the immune system to attack tumor cells. Um, It seems as if there have been a number of patent applications that have been abandoned, over 100 according to Robert Sachs at Fenwick and West. Um, that have been abandoned in light of the PTO's guidance following Mayo in 2012. And so to the extent that we want to encourage research in that particular area, I think this should be uh, worrisome for us. Another particular avenue that seems to be problematic is uh, one doctrine in patent law called the statutory bars. Um, In patent law, there's a time limit between when you are allowed to file your patent based on when you either invented it or when you first disclosed it to to the public. The problem with cancer research is that it takes a long time to validate some of the products of that research, to do the clinical trials needed to uncover whether or not a particular treatment is actually going to work. The statutory bars, what they do is that they encourage cancer researchers, if they're going to patent at all, to patent exceptionally early uh, when they don't have the best clinical trial data available for them. The flip side of that is that their patents also expire earlier. So that puts enormous time pressure on doing clinical trials in this particular area. So much pressure that some of these clinical trials either may be kind of... uh, Uh, conducted um, in a shorter fashion than we would either have liked or maybe even more perniciously that the types of cancer drugs that are going to be developed in the first instance are solely those that can be pigeonholed into shorter clinical trials in the first instance. Uh, 2015 article from the American Economic Review Uh, try to empirically assess the second of those claims are the types of drugs that are being developed for the types of cancer therapies for which shorter clinical trials can be conducted. Um, And the authors uh, resoundingly concluded, yes, it seems like the vast majority of private commercial cancer research is going to late phase cancers um, where the, um, uh, where the Likelihood of improvement seems low and therefore the, of, the possibility of determining their efficacy seems to be greater at least in a shorter period of time. This seems to be the opposite of the type of research that we want to be encouraging to the extent that we want to be encouraging private developers out there to come up with diagnostics and early stage treatments for which patients are more likely to actually benefit from them. So those are two areas, the paper goes through more, but those are two areas in which kind of patents seem to fail um, the uh, way that cancer research is being conducted today.
0: One other thing you mentioned in your paper, besides the legal constraints on cancer R&D, is that one of the ways to counter that is perhaps this emergence that we're seeing of public-private partnerships. and These partnerships would fill in the gaps for cancer research funding. The Cancer Moonshot, that's been in the news so much lately, is an example of one of those partnerships. Could you tell us more about the landscape for non-IP-based incentives um, for cancer R&D?
1: Yeah, well, so one of the methods that's being proposed is to the extent we're not going to encourage private developers to do cancer research because we're kind of lacking the traditional incentives in place, for example, you know, for the reasons that patents fail cancer research, which I was just talking about previously. Um, one way around that is to develop public-private partnerships to kind of use the public, you um, um, use public funding and incentives that only the public can provide to encourage private participants to do this research that they would not have otherwise done, right? And so the the moonshot, at least as it's currently structured, seems to be one of those ways. Um, there is a, a funding. There is a funding commitment through the National Cancer Institute to allow. Um, private companies to develop this cancer research using the means at their disposal at the National Cancer Institute, but only on the condition of things like data sharing. This is how um, the Cancer Moonshot was originally proposed as essentially a larger, more robust data sharing cancer research program than is currently being conducted um, in the private sphere because companies have every incentive to keep their research hidden from their rivals, uh, or in the public sphere which doesn't tend to do a lot of kind of end-stage clinical commercial research. Um, But at the same time the program is voluntary, right? You know, if you're Pfizer, if you're Merck, you don't have to participate in the Cancer Moonshot. So the question is how would we encourage companies like that to do work in this particular area? And again the answer seems to go back to intellectual property. How do we make better the intellectual property tools that we have at our disposal now to encourage companies to get involved in a project like the Cancer Moonshot or other private partnerships out there. Um, in my paper I go through kind of three IP levers, if you want to think of them that way, patents, trade secrets, and regulatory exclusivities, maybe a little more specifically regulatory exclusivities that are distributed by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, And to the extent that we can tailor those to both encourage participation in the cancer moonshot, but also to encourage the sharing of information that is derived from basic research in this area, then it seems like the moonshot would be at least fulfilling its objectives if it doesn't actually end up curing cancer.
0: So the general view is that the moonshot itself is a little bit underfunded, right? Um, Is that a view that you share?
1: Um, So there's this big question of how much funding is going to be needed to encourage people to participate. I don't necessarily think that there is kind of a hard and fast answer to that. I guess one kind of important thing to think about is like the Moonshot currently is structured to be funded with $1.8 billion of supplementary funding to the National Cancer Institute. You got to understand that is a drop in the bucket relative to the development of cancer drugs from any particular company's research platform, I mean, that's essentially kind of depending upon whether you believe these statistics, that's essentially what it costs to develop just one drug through the FDA approval process right now. So to the extent that's going to be distributed across the entire Moonshot, that seems like it's underfunded to me, but that money combined with a better tailoring of the IP incentives out there may be the vehicle to encourage participation in this area.
0: And so if the real legacy of the cancer moonshot and maybe future initiatives like this one is really tailoring intellectual property to cancer R&D and the same for similar diseases, what specific measures are you proposing for this tailoring to occur? In other words, what can we do on the IP side of things? And you've also talked about the FDA and the role that the FDA plays in this process. Um, Any final ideas on that? Yeah,
1: I mean, so essentially, you know, we... Even though the restrictions on uh, patentable subject matter may have a normative good to them, a lot of scholars have written about how too many bad patents are granted and the vehicle to restrict that is through the patent eligibility doctrine. Maybe this is one case which causes us to rethink how to describe that patentable subject matter test case. Either through statute or through some rulemaking at the PTO, to the extent that's an option still available after the Supreme after the Supreme Court cases. We may also want to think about kind of limiting um, some of the restrictions on the statutory bars, although that's probably gonna prove problematic because we have a bunch of international agreements that essentially locks us into them. Um, and to a greater or lesser extent, the written description and enablement requirements, which require patentees to describe their uh, patented claims to the fullest that they can. Um, we may want to give them a little bit more of a pass in that area than we would in kind of other cases. The, the trade secrets, this is typically an area in which um, uh, cancer research has been conducted, that is the kind of asset that a lot of cancer researchers Um, are using to protect their intellectual property has been through trade secrecy, especially for the kind of class of large molecule drugs out there. Um, This poses problems for a public-private partnership to the extent that we're using public money to just give someone a private benefit without disclosure, which is essentially what trade secrecy is. Um, That's something we actually may want to restrict. So maybe kind of one vehicle, although this wouldn't encourage people to participate, but one vehicle that's supposed to better align IP with the public-private goals of the Cancer Moonshot would be to kind of restrict trade secrecy in this area. On the kind of last venue out there, I think, is for us to think about ways in which the FDA can use its exclusivity regime to encourage companies to shepherd their products through the FDA approval process. There's a bunch of schemes out there to use uh, regulatory exclusivities in the FDA area, things like priority review vouchers um, to encourage companies to engage in a certain conduct you know, because they're going to get some kind of tradable FDA asset when they're actually finished with this. There's been a lot of commentary written about how priority review vouchers are kind of normatively bad but again to the extent and you know people may not may think the moonshot is a bad idea but to the extent that we want uh, uh, private companies to participate in a program like the cancer moonshot we need to think about using those assets that are available at the agency's disposal now. So I think kind of tailoring those intellectual property areas, expanding them, as in the case of patents and regulatory exclusivities, and narrowing them, as in the case of trade secrecy, is a way to kind of, I think, solve these conundrums with respect to cancer research and public-private partnerships.
0: Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was the Jaharis Podcast on Health and IP. You can find us on the website of the Mary and Michael Jaharis Health Law Institute and on iTunes.